Gresham College presents Britain in the 20th Century, Progress and Decline, The Road to War by Vernon Bogdanor, CBE and FBA, Emeritus Gresham Professor of Law. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I hope no one's come today hoping to hear a talk on the end of the post-war settlement. Um, uh, as those of you who've been coming to these lectures know, I, I fall a long way behind my original schedule. And in, fa in fact, today I'll be talking about the end of the pre-war settlement uh, before the Second World War, uh, but I will be talking wholly on the post-Second War period uh, in the next academic year, which I think begins in, in September. But uh, this lecture will be on, on the uh, immediate pre-war period. And those who came to the last lecture will remember that it ended with Neville Chamberlain in the plane uh, on the way to the Munich conference uh, with Hitler. Um, and at that conference, it was the only conference that Hitler ever attended, in fact. Uh, and there were four powers present, the British and the French, uh, the Germans and the Italians. And they were the four great powers of the time. It's interesting, if you look ten years later, in 1948, none of those four, with a marginal exception of Britain, could perhaps be regarded as a great power. The great powers then were the United States and the Soviet Union, possibly Britain a great power, the British sort thought so, but not everyone else did. Um, but uh, the Americans were not at the Munich conference. Uh, they said they weren't to take any responsibilities with regard to Europe, but they, they uh, wished it well. And uh, Roosevelt sent a message saying the government of the United States has no political involvement in Europe and will assume no obligations in the conduct of the present negotiations. The Soviets were not invited either to um, Munich, although they had an alliance with Czechoslovakia whose borders were being considered. So it was, in a way, the last great conference, if you like, of the European powers. And you may remember from last time, this was the third of Chamberlain's three visits to Hitler. And uh, during the first visit, they seemed to have reached agreement uh, that the borderlands, the German-speaking borderlands of Czechoslovakia, called the Sudetenland, would be ceded to Germany. But at the second meeting, things seemed to go wrong. Hitler said that wasn't sufficient and that he demanded immediate occupation of the areas concerned, and also that the Hungarians and Poles who had claims on Czechoslovakia should, in addition, be allowed to take their own territories of Hungarian and Polish-speaking people, and uh, gave Chamberlain what he felt perhaps was an ultimatum, and the cabinet, um, Chamberlain was all the same on the whole in favor of acceptance, but the cabinet said this, this is not right, we can't go ahead on that basis. And it looked for a time as if uh, a war would break out. Uh, trenches were being built in London, gas masks were being issued. And Chamberlain made a famous broadcast, and later much held against him, in which he said how fantastic it is that we should be trying on gas masks and building trenches because of a quarrel in a faraway country of which we know nothing. Uh, and I suspect that perhaps, although he was criticised, it did reflect perhaps the attitude of many British people. And uh, as the, the, in the, there was a debate in Parliament on the situation, and people remembered 1914, when it seemed that another quarrel in a faraway country, another Serbia, uh, was bringing Britain into war. There was a kind of chain of events that was um, inexorable, 
and somehow couldn't be avoided, dragging Britain in to quarrel on the continent. But uh, as um, Chamberlain was making his winding up speech, uh, a message came, was passed on the Treasury bench to him, that Hitler had agreed to hold a conference to discuss the issues concerned. And that the whole house erupted, or the opposition as well as the government, only a few people retaining this, remaining in their seats, Churchill and Eden amongst them, but the whole house erupted with thanks because um, it looked as if we were going to be delivered from war. And people felt, wrongly I think, but they felt that at the beginning of a war, it wouldn't be like the first war in 1914, but London would immediately be bombed and there'd be very, very heavy casualties. So it, it, it was, seemed like a great uh, deliverance. Uh, Roosevelt sent a telegram to Neville Chamberlain saying, good man, uh, simply that. And Chamberlain, uh, when he reached Heston Airport to set off for um, Germany for the third time, uh, he was very fond of Shakespeare, and he used a Shakespearean quotation from, I think, Henry IV, Part I. Uh, Out of this nettle danger, we pluck this flower safety. Uh, the poet laureate, John Macefield, uh, wrote a poem celebrating this, and the poem was as follows. He said, as Priam to Achilles for his son, so you into the night divinely led to ask that young men's bodies not yet dead be given from the battle not yet begun. Now, the uh, Munich conference, uh, in a sense, there wasn't much to decide because um, uh, Mussolini produced a proposal which had been coordinated with Hitler beforehand for the cession of the Sudeten territories to Germany. And the uh, proposal was that there should be a fairly immediate session of the German-speaking territories um, and that the remaining territories, disputed areas, should be decided on by a commission as to whether they should remain with Czechoslovakia or be with Germany. And this commission was to be composed of five states, the four states meeting in Munich and Czechoslovakia. And this seemed good to Britain because it meant, after all, there'd be three states on the democratic side, Britain, France, and Czechoslovakia. And they said that after this process had been reached, the Germans and Italians, together with the British and French, would guarantee what remained of Czechoslovakia against further aggression. So that was the basis of the Munich Agreement. The cession of the German-speaking territories, uh, disputed territories to be decided on by a commission, and then a guarantee of all the powers involved of what remained of Czechoslovakia. Now, uh, the Munich Agreement was not, uh, let me emphasize, it wasn't to decide whether the Sudeten area should be ceded. That had been agreed at the first meeting with Chamberlain. What the agreement was deciding was the method and conditions by which the transfer was made. Uh, whether it should be by force, by an ultimatum, which it seemed to be the case at the second meeting with Hitler, or whether it should be by agreement. And this, for Chamberlain, was a key issue because it symbolized the larger question as to whether Hitler could be contained within the international system or not. In other words, uh, was it the case, as the critics argued, led by Churchill, that uh, there was going to be an inevitable war, that Hitler introduced an unstable element into Europe which could only be dealt with by war, or could Hitler, violent and ruthless though he was, 
be held within certain rules of international conduct. And all this seemed to be uh, within the uh, views of uh, Chamberlain um, and seemed to meet his views about the procedure. And um, Chamberlain said the guarantee was very important for Czechoslovakia because he said it would mean the new Czechoslovakia could find a greater security than she had enjoyed in the past. Um, so you would have a more compact country without the minorities and with a guarantee. And Chamberlain said, the new republic may be as safe as Switzerland has been for many generations in the past on the continent of Europe. And even one of his leading critics who resigned from the government, the only man who resigned from the government, Duff Cooper, the war secretary, he's the father, incidentally, of John Julius Norwich, the uh, well-known art commentator. He resigned from the government. But he said, even he said, there are great and important differences, and it's a triumph for the prime minister that he was able to acquire them. Now, we now know what people didn't know at the time, uh, of course, that Hitler was uh, intending to attack Czechoslovakia. He, did, he was not interested in a peaceful settlement and that he wanted to use the excuse of the German-speaking territories to invade Czechoslovakia as he was going to invade Poland the year afterwards. And if you see it from that point of view, uh, you can see that Neville Chamberlain had actually won, that he prevented a war. And I think this is the first thing to be said about Munich, that for better or worse, it prevented a war breaking out there. And you may take the view, many people do take the view, it, it, it's, it's a powerful view that we, it would have been better to have fought then than in 1939. But Neville Chamberlain wrote to his sister that all the prayers of all the peoples of the world, including Germany, had prevailed against the fanatical obstinacy of one man. And he said that Britain, although military weak, military weak, had made Hitler work within an international framework of negotiation. Now, uh, as well as the Munich Agreement, uh, Chamberlain achieved another agreement with Hitler, which became an even more notorious, because he said that he'd like to have a further chat with Hitler at his flat in Munich, and he produced a piece of paper uh, which said that the, um, Britain and Germany agreed that uh, they were primarily responsible for the peace of Europe, and the method of negotiation and consultation should be used in future to deal with any differences between them rather than force. And he said, would Hitler sign that? And Hitler said, yes, certainly. And so that was signed. And that was the piece of paper that famously Hitler and Neville Chamberlain waved when he got back to Heston Airport. Now, as I said, the sense of relief was extraordinary in Britain, a hysterical sense of relief. Crowds lined the roads from Heston to London. It was um, quite remarkable. Uh, the king, um, unwisely, I think, constitution, certainly. The king and queen appeared with Neville Chamberlain on the balcony of um, um, Buckingham Palace uh, to welcome the agreement, which constitution was a mistake because it was the subject of a division in Parliament and the opposition didn't agree with it. And uh, Neville Chamberlain, when he got back to number 10 Downing Street, uh, there were tremendous cheers and demands for him to appear on the balcony and say something. And one of Chamberlain's colleagues said, Neville, go to the window and repeat history by saying, peace in our time. Uh, because um, Disraeli in 1878, after the Treaty of Berlin, said this is, brings peace in our time. And Chamberlain rather crossly turned to the minister concerned and said, no, I don't do not that sort of thing. But he did do it, and in the uh, heat of the moment, he later regretted it, I think. He said this. He said, my good friends, this is the second time in our history that there has come back from Germany to Downing Street peace with honour. I believe it is peace 
for our time. But his, I, th I think that's an unfair view of his attitude. As he was driving from the airport with the Foreign Secretary, Lord Halifax, whose first name was Edward, he said to him, Edward, we must hope for the best and fear for the worst. And I think that's a fairer account of his attitude. Now, um, when you, whenever you watch a BBC programme, you will, um, uh, ITN programme for that matter, and they talk about Munich, you will get the impression the whole country was against the agreement, but the polls show that wasn't the case. It was welcomed. Every newspaper supported it, except for the Daily Telegraph and a um, Labour newspaper, a small left-wing circulation newspaper no longer exists, called Reynolds News. And um, the proprietor of the Daily Mail, Lord Rothermere, went even further, sending a congratulatory telegram to Hitler uh, saying that Frederick the Great was a popular figure in England. May not Adolf the Great become an equally popular figure? <laughs> he said, I salute your excellency's star, which rises higher and higher. Now, uh, the way we now think of Munich is as a symbol of weakness, as a rather innocent and foolish old man being bluffed by a ruthless dictator. And that, I think, cannot be sustained, because, as I said, uh, Hitler was intending to go to war. Neville Chamberlain was anything but a weak man. He was a very powerful and strong prime minister who wasn't bluffed or blackmailed. And the Munich Agreement merely ratified decisions that had already been made, dealt primarily with uh, procedures. And um, uh, he therefore had some hopes that this would uh, actually work. Now, in the debate in Parliament, um, uh, 39 Conservative MPs abstained in, in the debate on the Munich Agreement, and they included three future Prime Ministers, Winston Churchill, Anthony Eden and Harold Macmillan. And um, having given Chamberlain's side of the case, I now give Churchill's side of the case. And um, Chamberlain, uh, a certain logic to his case, I think, but everything Churchill said uh, came about to be true. <coughs> Churchill began by saying this. He punctured the mood of euphoria. He said, we are in the presence of a disaster of the first magnitude. <coughs> Do not let us blind ourselves to that. And do not suppose that this is the end. This is only the beginning of the reckoning. This is only the first sip, the first foretaste of a bitter cup which will be proffered to us. <clears throat> this is the consequence of five years of futile good intentions, five years of eager search for the line of least resistance, five years of uninterrupted retreat of British power, five years of neglect of air defences. We have been reduced in these five years from a position of security so overwhelming and so unchallengeable that we never care to think about it. We have been reduced from a position where the very word war was considered one which would be used only by persons qualifying for a lunatic asylum. And then he made a prediction. He said, I venture to think that in future the Czech state cannot be maintained as an independent entity you will find that in a period of time which may be measured by years, but may be measured only by months, Czechoslovakia will be engulfed in the Nazi regime, which is precisely what happened. And he ended by saying, there can never be friendship between the British democracy and the Nazi power. That power which spurns Christian ethics, which cheers its onward course by a barbarous paganism, which vaunts the spirit of aggression and conquest, which derives strength and perverted pleasure from persecution, and uses, as we have seen, with pitiless brutality, the threat of murderous force. That power cannot ever be the trusted friend of the British democracy. 
And he ended by saying, what I find unendurable is a sense of our country falling into the power, into the orbit of Nazi Germany, and of our existence becoming dependent upon their goodwill or pleasure. Now, all that still leaves open, I think, the argument of whether we ought to have gone to war in 1938 or 39. And there's one powerful um, witness who thinks we ought to have gone to war in 1938, and that was Hitler himself. Because he said to Martin Bormann at the very end of his life in 1945, September 1938, that was the most favourable moment where an attack carried the lowest risk for us. Great Britain and France, surprised by the speed of our attack, would have done nothing. All the more so since we had world opinion on our side. We could have settled the remaining territorial questions in Eastern Europe and the Balkans without fearing intervention from the Anglo-French powers. And I, uh, that does not seem to me a wholly unreasonable judgment. The British opinion, at any rate, wasn't yet convinced that Hitler had to be resisted, and for all the unattractiveness of his regime, uh, people said, well, he does have a case on grounds of self-determination. Now, um, the hopes of the Munich settlement were immediately shattered by uh, Germany's attitude after it, because in his first speech after the Munich Agreement, uh, Hitler said that the British should mind their own business and not interfere in Central Europe at all, he didn't indeed mention the Munich Agreement, but he said that Germany had only one friend, and that was Mussolini's Italy. Uh, he called Stanley Baldwin, the former um, Prime Minister, rather an offensive person, called him a gutter snipe in his speech, and said that Churchill and Eden were warmongers who were threatening Germany. In November, uh, just a month or so after the Munich Agreement, there was a vicious pogrom against German Jews. Now, when the International Commission began to meet to carry out the Munich Agreement, Germany simply demanded what she wanted and said if she didn't get what she wanted, she would use force against Czechoslovakia. And the British and French, not having resisted at the time in Munich, was hardly in a position to do so now. And uh, so the Germans more or less took what boundaries they wanted in Czechoslovakia. And when the British asked about the guarantee, the Germans said that was best forgotten and they weren't going to do anything about it. Now, in March uh, 1939, um, Czechoslovakia fell apart under the pressures from Hitler, who pressed the Slovaks to declare independence and then occupied Bohemia and Moravia, what's now the Czech Republic. And at first, uh, the British government were rather stunned by that, and the Chancellor of the Exchequer, when asked about the British guarantee, said you could no longer guarantee a country which no longer existed. Uh, but that wasn't obviously a very helpful <laughs> response. And uh, Chamberlain then made a speech at Birmingham in which he said that no one could be uh, more dedicated to peace than him, but if Germany was going to challenge uh, for world domination or European domination, Britain would resist that. And therefore, uh, they must take steps to stop uh, attacking uh, any further. And Chamberlain uh, first uh, said, uh, a seemingly reasonable proposal, that there should be a front against aggression of all the countries which might appear to be threatened by Germany, and that Britain and France should be the leaders of that front. And the obvious countries concerned were the countries, remaining country, independent countries of Eastern Europe, particularly Poland and Romania, uh, but also the Soviet Union. 
and the British government issued an appeal to these countries to uh, say that they would join together in some form of mutual defence pact and collective security. And unfortunately, this ran into an immediate snag because the Poles and Romanians said they didn't want to have anything to do with the Soviet Union because uh, if the Soviet Union helped them, uh, they would never be able to escape from Russian um, clutches, as it were, and that they were strongly anti-communist and they were almost, if not as much, uh, afraid or get hostile to the Soviet Union as they were to Nazi Germany. So that idea had to be dropped. And the British government's next idea was to guarantee the countries of independent Eastern Europe against any threat to that independence, particularly Poland and Romania. And fairly rapidly after the invasion of um, uh, Bohemia and Moravia, the British government in a sense changed its policy by getting involved in Eastern Europe and giving a guarantee to the Polish government that if Poland was the victim of aggression, uh, we would uh, go to war to defend Poland. Now, uh, Chamberlain much criticised, the government much criticised for giving that guarantee and for leaving the Soviet Union out. But it seems to me there wasn't much that they could do because Poland was the country that was going to be threatened. And um, the Poles insisted they didn't want to be helped by the Soviet Union. You can understand that, and in light of later history, you may say, well, you know, perhaps they were right to take that view. But they said, once the Soviet Union comes into our territory, they will never leave. Now, at that time, uh, there was a German minority in Poland, as there had been in Czechoslovakia, and there, was a th there were further problems, which German governments, even before Hitler, had drawn attention to. There was first the so-called free city of Danzig, now called Gdansk, and that had been um, uh, originally, after the First War, given to Poland to enable her to have a corridor to the sea, an outlet to the sea. But after protests that this was a German city, there was a compromise by which it was to be a free city under the League of Nations, giving facilities to Poland, uh, but not part of Poland or Germany. Uh, so it was a compromise introduced for Germany's benefit, really, in 1919. Secondly, um, in 1919, in the peace settlement, uh, there was one part of Germany which was, were split from the main um, part uh, called East Prussia, which the capital was Königsberg. It's now in the Soviet Union, or Russia, called Kaliningrad. But that was split off from the rest of Germany to allow Poland to have a so-called corridor to the sea uh, and give Poland a port. And um, there were uh, arrangements for transit uh, across the two parts of Germany so that Germans didn't have to show their passports and so on, and the Poles scrupulously uh, respected those agreements, but still, it did um, upset Germans that their territory was broken up in that way. And uh, shortly after the Munich Agreement, uh, Hitler presented proposals to the Poles saying that Danzig must be unconditionally returned to Nazi Germany. Uh, it was a German city and must be unconditionally returned. And that there must be an extraterritorial um, railway and road built through the Polish corridor, which would be German, uh, cutting across the Polish corridor. And thirdly, most important of all, from Hitler's point of view, that Poland should join the anti-Comintern pact, of which Germany, Italy and Japan were members, and in return there was a vague hint 
that Poland would be given territory in the Soviet Union after Hitler had attacked the Soviet Union. <coughs> now, the Poles, uh, unlike the Czechs, were not prepared to discuss or negotiate with this. They said the, the, that Danzig is not negotiable, and uh, they, they, were, they were prepared to liberalize conditions in the Polish corridor. They weren't prepared to sacrifice territory to have their own country cut into two. And they also weren't prepared to join the anti-Comintern pact, because although they were hostile to communism, they thought their best chance was the balance between Germany and Russia, who they thought were two enemies that would never get together. So they rejected um, um, Hitler's demands. And uh, the tension was rising uh, throughout 1939. And um, the British government then thought about how they could strengthen their, uh, what they hoped would be a peace front to deter Hitler from war. And they then approached the Soviet Union, rather against the wishes of Neville Chamberlain, who said that he didn't trust the Soviet Union and had distrust their intention. He wrote to his sister in March 1939, I must confess to the most profound distrust of Russia. I have no belief whatever in her ability to maintain an effective offensive even if she wanted to. There had just been purges in the Soviet army which had weakened them. And I distrust her motives, which seem to me to have little connection with our ideas of liberty and to be concerned only with getting everyone else by the ears. Moreover, she is both hated and suspected by many of the smaller states, notably by Poland, Romania and Finland, so that our close association with her might easily cost us the sympathy of those who would much more effectively help us if we could get them on, on our side. Now, the first British proposals to the Soviet Union, and you may think there's another important turning point in history, because you may say, if we could have got a, an alliance for the Soviet Union, we could have won the war more easily, and we might have avoided some of the Cold War. But our first proposals to the Soviet Union were pretty cack-handed, it has to be confessed. Because we said, um, will the Soviet Union agree that if Poland's attacked, or Romania's attacked, you will go to their aid. And the Poles said, well, wait a minute, what are we going to get, the Soviets said, what are we going to get in return? You'll be attacked by the German army, and what will you be doing? And the British and French said, well, we'll be on the other side, and you can rely on us to help out. And the Soviets said, no, no, any agreements have to be absolutely reciprocal, and we also have to ensure that we are allowed to enter Polish and Romanian territory if necessary for their defence. And the British then sent a delegation with the French across to Moscow for discussions, which lasted a long time. And the British and French made endless concessions, in my opinion, I mean, some people disagree, endless concessions. The Soviets, in a rather rigid way, just stuck to their position, which was a mutual defence pact, <coughs> agreement by the Poles and Romanians that Soviet troops should be allowed to enter to defend them if there was an attack by Germany, which would also help defend the Soviet Union. And the Poles and Romanians said flatly no. Uh, the British tried to get round that in the end by saying, uh, we will convey the Polish opinion to the Soviet Union and we'll then try and uh, insist and tell the Poles what should be done. But the Russians said, no, no, it's no good. We want it directly from the Poles themselves. Now, maybe the Soviets were making excuses we don't know. I just don't think we know enough about Soviet behavior. But at any rate, the negotiations were broken off uh, in August, and the Nazi-Soviet pact signed just a week or so before the war broke out. Um, uh, and uh, my, my own uh, view, for what it's worth, is that the Soviets did not want an agreement uh, on the uh, ground that they would face the huge bulk of the German army without much help from Britain and France, but that if they had an agreement with the Nazis, that would turn Germany against Britain and France, and they might benefit 
from any stalemate such as occurred in the First War. That's my view, but there are people who take a, a, a different view. But um, my, my view is that uh, the Soviets didn't want an agreement. And it's fair to say that those in the cabinet who'd pressed Chamberlain to negotiate with the Soviet Union had to admit afterwards that they thought he was right, that the Soviets couldn't be trusted and they didn't want an agreement. Um, the Soviets during the war, of course, spoke a lot about a second front, they could have had a second front in 1939 had they wanted it. And very rarely for them, they actually agreed they'd made a mistake because Molotov, the uh, Soviet foreign minister, the most rigid of people who just put down the Soviet position and refused to negotiate, said this is the Soviet position throughout this period and you, know, you either accept it or, or, or nothing happened, you know, no negotiation. He met a British official in 1942 in London after the Soviet Union had been attacked and he said, I am glad to see an old friend. He said, we did our best in 1939 but we failed. We were both at fault. And that I think is a rare admission from any Soviet uh, diplomat that they actually uh, made a mistake. Now, um, the, uh, when the war broke out, Poland was um, occupied very quickly within a month, and the British and French took up a defensive position on the Western Front. And the first really aggressive move on the part of the British, very much influenced by Churchill, who was brought into the government when war broke out, was um, the operation in Norway to try and deny Germany iron ore, which was coming from Sweden through Norway and then uh, to German ports. And that was a disastrous failure, as Chamberlain, to be fair, had predicted. The army was not yet uh, well-trained enough to cope with those conditions. Conscription had been introduced just in April 1939, shortly before the war. The Germans had had conscription since 1935, and it was a humiliating disaster. But such as is the way in politics, the disaster reflected on Chamberlain and his critics say this is just the last of a whole series of disasters you've led us into. Uh, the Munich Agreement was a disaster. Your guarantee to Poland was a disaster. You didn't get an agreement with the Russians. And now this terrible trouble in Norway. And in a debate, in effect, a vote of confidence, the normal national government, predominantly conservative, majority of 200 was reduced to 81. And it was very clear that uh, things couldn't go on as they were. And it was also clear that for the war to be prosecuted effectively, uh, it had to be run by a genuine coalition, and uh, you had to bring the Labour and Liberal parties into the government. So Chamberlain uh, called the leaders of these parties together and asked them two questions. He said, first, will you join a coalition led by me? And secondly, if not, will you join a coalition led by someone else? And the answer to the first question was no, and the answer to the second question was yes. So it meant that Chamberlain would have to resign and you'd have to have another leader. Now, uh, in retrospect, we think that Churchill was the obvious leader, but that wasn't how it seemed at the time. There was another candidate who was the Foreign Secretary, Lord Halifax. And many people since have doctored their diaries and their reminiscences by saying they all favoured Churchill. But in fact, most people at the time favoured Lord Halifax. The King certainly favoured Lord Halifax because Churchill had been an ally of Edward VIII in 1936. As I said in my last lecture, if you've seen the King's speech, it's a travesty of history to think that Churchill was close to the King. They became close in the war, it's true, but in 1940, uh, the King was very suspicious of Churchill. Uh, the Conservative Party, on the whole, supported Halifax because Churchill had been a rebel against the Conservative governments in the 1930s, not only on foreign policy, which is perhaps forgivable, but on the question of India, where it seemed he was completely wrong and that, that it was right to move towards Indian self-government. 
The Labour Party was hostile to Churchill because he'd been so hostile to the trade unions uh, in the time of the general strike. So he didn't really have many friends. And in my opinion, though again this is a matter of some controversy, Chamberlain played a great part in helping to make Churchill Prime Minister because instead of going straight to the King and resigning, he held a meeting uh, at which Halifax, Churchill and the Chief Whip were present and it was decided that uh, Churchill should become Prime Minister. Halifax said, I can't, I can't do it, I'm a peer. That, I think, wasn't a serious problem in, in the war, but uh, it was eventually agreed that Churchill's name should be there. But when, when Chamberlain went to the palace and said he was going to resign, the King said, that means I should send for Lord Halifax, I suppose. And Chamberlain said, no, I don't think he's the right person now. I think Churchill's a man you should call. And so Churchill became Prime Minister. It was much, I think, closer than um, uh, people now uh, imagine. Um, Churchill's support before the war had really been very small. Uh, shortly after the Munich Agreement, in November 1938, he called for a Ministry of Supply and asked for 50 Conservatives to follow him into the lobby, but only two did so. Uh, one of them being Harold Macmillan, the future Prime Minister, also completely isolated at that uh, time. And um, so um, uh, Churchill uh, became uh, Prime Minister. Now, um, on the day that Churchill became Prime Minister, one of these extraordinary historical coincidences, Hitler invaded in the West. And contrary to what uh, was thought, he broke through on the Western Front in, in, in through the Ardennes, which was thought to be impossible, and very rapidly uh, was going to defeat France. And uh, Churchill became Prime Minister on the 10th of May. By the 26th of May, it was clear France was defeated, being defeated, and the French Prime Minister, Monsieur Reynaud, came over to Britain to say that uh, France was going to sue for peace, and would uh, Britain follow example or try and see what terms were available. Uh, Churchill wrote this in his war memoirs. He said, future generations may deem it noteworthy that the supreme question of whether we should fight on alone never found a place upon the war cabinet agenda. We were much too busy to waste time upon such academic unreal issues. If you look at the War Cabinet Minutes of the 27th of May, 1940, you will find this. The War Cabinet had before them two reports by the Chiefs of Staff and a note by the Minister without portfolio. A record of the discussion is contained in the Secretary's standard file of War Cabinet conclusions. A rather innocuous statement, you may say, but what it concealed was a debate on whether Britain should continue to fight in the war. And Churchill, rather generous in, in that statement I quoted a moment ago, because we now know the War Cabinet held no fewer than five meetings between the 26th and the 28th of May uh, to decide whether they were going to continue the battle. And uh, on the 27th of May, uh, a disagreement arose between Churchill and his Foreign Secretary, Lord Halifax. Because Halifax said it would be worth consulting with the Italians to see what peace terms were available. And if they were such as to preserve the British Empire, we would, should consider them very seriously. He said, if we got to the point of discussing the terms of a general settlement, 
and found that we could obtain terms which did not postulate the destruction of our independence, we should be foolish uh, if we did not accept them. And Churchill uh, was opposed to that. It was a mistake. It would get out. It would compromise our position. We won't be able to withdraw. We won't be able to fight again. Hitler will give us generous terms, but he'll insist on British disarmament, and we won't be able to continue. And um, that uh, evening, um, Halifax wrote in his diary that certain rather profound differences of view had arisen, which he would like to make clear. He said if British independence was not at stake, he would think it right to accept an offer which would save the country from avoidable disaster. And he further wrote, at the 4.30 cabinet, we had a long and rather confused discussion about nominally the approach to Italy, but also largely about general policy in the event of things going really badly in France. I thought Winston talked the most frightful rot. Also Greenwood, who was a Labour member of the War Cabinet. And after leaving it for some time, I said exactly what I thought of them, adding that if that was really their view, and if it came to the point, our ways must separate. And he said to the Permanent Secretary at the Foreign Office, I can't work with Winston any longer. Now, on the 28th of May, there was a final Cabinet meeting, and Lord Halifax again said, we might get better terms before France went out of the war and our aircraft factories were bombed than we might get in three months' time. The meeting was adjourned at quarter past six to meet again at seven o'clock, and in that adjournment, Churchill met with the ministers of cabinet rank who were not in the small war cabinet of five. And he said, of course, whatever happens at Dunkirk, we shall fight on. He said it was idle to think that if we tried to make peace now, we should get better terms from Germany than if we went on and fought it out. We should become a slave state, though a British government, which would be Hitler's puppet, would be set up under Mosley or some such person. And a Labour minister who was present said not much more was said. No one expressed even the faintest flicker of dissent. So when Churchill got back to the cabinet, he could say that all the other ministers supported him. He said, he told the cabinet, he did not remember having ever before heard a gathering of persons occupying high places in political life express themselves so emphatically. Um, so that was one um, um, attempt at a peace settlement which didn't get anywhere. There was a second one at the beginning of June when a junior minister at the Foreign Office uh, become a very important figure in post-war politics, R.A. Butler, met the Swedish ambassador in St. James Park and he invited him uh, to uh, come into the Foreign Office for a chat. Now, Butler uh, had been a junior minister in the Foreign Office under Edward Halifax, Lord Halifax, from 1938. And in October 1939, when Hitler made a peace offer and the cabinet rejected it contemptuously, he tried to soften the terms of the rejection. And in March 1940, was sympathetic to the, the idea of a truce with Germany. In May 1940, he tried unsuccessfully to persuade Lord Halifax to accept the premiership. And shortly after Churchill had been asked to form a government, Butler expressed the view, which uh, he was not alone in holding, I think, I mean, he wasn't eccentric, 
that the good, clean tradition of English politics had been sold to the greatest adventurer in modern political history. He believed this sudden coup of Winston and his rabble was a serious disaster. He said, Churchill was, I quote, a half-breed American whose main support was that of inefficient but talkative people of a similar type. Now, um, Churchill, uh, Butler had a discussion with the Swedish ambassador, which he later claimed was misunderstood. But the Swedish ambassador reported back to his government. I should say he was a very good English speaker. He was, doesn't necessarily funny, he was educated at Dulwich College. Uh, <laughs> and he reported back to his government in Stockholm the following. He said, during highly confidential conversation today with Butler at the Foreign Office, he confirmed that France had capitulated without any reservations concerning her fleet or colonies. Everything had been attempted yesterday to support Renault, but in vain. Britain's official attitude will for the present continue to be that the war must go on, but he assured me that no opportunity for reaching a compromise peace would be neglected if the possibility were offered on reasonable conditions and that no diehards would be allowed to stand in the way in this connection. He thought that Britain had greater possibilities of negotiation today than she might have later on and that Russia would come to play a greater role than USA if conversations began. During the conversation, Butler was called in to see Halifax, who sent me the message that, and I quote, common sense, not bravado, would dictate the British government's policy. Halifax added he realised such a message would be welcomed by the Swedish minister, but it should not be interpreted as peace at any price. It would appear from conversations I have had with other members of Parliament that there is an expectation that if and when the prospect of negotiation arises, possibly after the 28th of June, Halifax may succeed Churchill. And the, this uh, was sent on to the Swedish ambassador to Germany, who met the permanent secretary at the Foreign Office in Berlin. And the permanent secretary wrote this in his diaries, published after the war. The Swedish minister spoke to me today about the collapse of France, and then went on to ask what we thought England's attitude would be now. When I replied that yesterday's speech by Churchill did not give the impression that people in England had come to see reason, the Swedish minister said that last night he had read a very recent telegram from the Swedish minister in London, which gave a different impression. The Swedish representative in London had observed, on the contrary, a return to sound common sense in authoritative circles in London. And a few days later, he said, during a conversation with a Swedish minister on another subject, I showed him this afternoon a press report from London which stated that Lloyd George was to enter the government and to take over the post of Prime Minister in order to conclude a compromise peace with Germany. The Minister said at once this version was new to him and he could hardly believe it. On the contrary, he repeated on this occasion too that a peace trend was beginning to be perceptible in the present English Cabinet. Going down the list of the more important members of the Cabinet, he eliminated Churchill, Eden, Duff Cooper, Chamberlain and Simon as unsuitable for this, and hinted that Halifax represented the peace trend. When I said again that we knew nothing of such peace moves in England, the minister said more emphatically than his last visit that we would soon hear something more of this, but he could, of course, not say in what way. So that was another uh, peace uh, attempt that uh, uh, really, in the end, got uh, nowhere. And um, um, an, an important uh, point, I think. Um, now, uh, the, um, 
this was, I think, a decisive turning point, really, not only in British history, but in European and world history, because if the war cabinet had approached Mussolini, it could not really have gone back on it, and the government could hardly have continued to go on fighting, I think. But uh, Churchill telegraphed to Admiral Keyes after this, that our only hope is victory, and England will never quit the war, whatever happens, till Hitler is beat, or we cease to be a state. Now, there was one further chance, I think, and the, the mention of Lloyd George brings it in, that Lloyd George was, uh, in my opinion, um, waiting outside the government, assuming that uh, peace negotiations would have to be held and that he would be called in um, uh, to um, uh, lead them, as it were. And uh, he said, shortly after Churchill became prime minister, he told the newspaper magnate of the Daily Mirror, Cecil King, he said he expects that Churchill will get into a mess and that he, the victor of the last war, will be called in too late and will have no alternative but to sue for peace. Uh, Churchill offered him a post in the government or the post of ambassador to Washington, but Lloyd George declined both on the ostensible ground that he was too old, but I, I'm not sure that was his uh, attitude. And uh, Lord Beaverbrook said that uh, to one of his colleagues, the public are divided into two camps about that statesman, Lloyd George. There are the people who think that Winston should bring him in, and other people who think Hitler would bring him in. But uh, that didn't happen either. But at the end of the war, uh, Hitler regarded that as another missed opportunity. He said Churchill's real opponent was Lloyd George. Unfortunately, he is 20 years too old, which is, I don't think that was the only feature. I think the British uh, uh, publics on the whole supported Churchill's aim of uh, fighting on, at least that's what he said. Now, uh, 1940, the effects are clearly colossal uh, in terms of uh, world history because although uh, Britain couldn't win the war on her own without the help of America and Russia, she could ensure that the war wasn't lost and that Hitler did not win it. And I think that was a crucial decision uh, of 1940. And Britain uh, one of only two countries to declare war in 1939 on Hitler before themselves being attacked and fought on when Hitler had nearly won the war and came much closer to winning it, I think, than is often uh, recognised. And um, so uh, I think that is uh, very uh, important. Um, now, um, uh, Attlee uh, was once asked uh, what Churchill had done to win the war and replied rather laconically, he talked about it, but um, uh, uh, he, uh, his uh, wartime speeches did, I think, express the view that uh, people should fight on. And Churchill said uh, that it, um, the uh, nation had the lion's heart. I had the luck to be called upon to give the roar. So his argument was, I think, that even if uh, the government had favoured a compromise peace, the public would not have accepted it. We obviously don't know whether it was a generous... Uh, a generous uh, view. Now, um, the, uh, what happened in 1940 also had very important effects on domestic politics, which I now want to go into, because, of course, the key factor domestically in the war was to make the Labour Party, if you like, respectable, to bring them into government. They'd been brought into government in the first war, but um, with the general strike, um, weak Labour governments, financial crisis, they weren't quite perhaps seen as part of the establishment. But the Second World War really completed that process of making the Labour Party a part of the state. And politics had to adjust to that. Now, the... Um, 
leader of the Labour Party in 1940 was Attlee. And again, our views of Attlee are much uh, influenced by hindsight. When he was elected in 1935, it was widely thought he would be a stopgap because uh, he was one of the few who kept their seats in 1931. You remember the national government swept all before it against the Labour Party. Only 46 Labour MPs returned, and all the people who'd been in the cabinet, uh, bar one, were defeated in 1931. And Attlee had been a junior minister. No one, I think, thought of him as having leadership potential. He was returned. He became deputy leader of the Labour Party. And when the elderly leader, George Lansbury, resigned in 1935, Attlee was chosen more or less because he, he, he'd been there. And um, he was thought to be a stopgap. And someone said, well, a, a little mouse shall lead them. Uh, he was unimpressive. And uh, Cecil King, when he heard him in 1940, said that uh, uh, how unimpressive he was. He said, if I'd heard that he'd been employed by East Ham Council on a salary of £10 a week, I'd have thought that would be excessive. So no, people thought very little of him. And uh, oddly enough, he's the longest, longest leader of any major party in the 20th century, leader of the Labour Party for 20 years. So it shows you to be careful in making judgment. But in the war, um, he is not in there as leader of the Labour Party, but he, he was chairman of most of the important committees. In fact, he ran the war uh, domestically while Churchill went to the great international conferences and conducted grand strategy. And Attlee proved a most remarkably effective chairman and gained great respect. But the opinion polls show us that uh, had there been an election in 1939 or 1940 in peacetime, Labour would hardly have done better than in 1935. It would not have won uh, a general election, almost certainly. And so the, uh, one must attribute the, the landslide victory of 1945, I think, very much to things that happened during the war, changes that happened during the war, one of which was it made Labour respectable. And Labour in 1945 had tremendous advantages because they were both the government who'd been responsible for a great victory. You couldn't say they were untrained or inexperienced in government. But they were also the opposition because they'd opposed the Conservatives in the 1930s, both on domestic policy and on the foreign policy, which, was, which then seemed to be uh, disastrous. And so uh, that uh, was uh, of fundamental importance for um, the Labour Party. And this was, was beginning to be noticeable in the 1930s, that there was, in the late 1930s, despite the previous hostility between the Labour Party and Churchill, that uh, they seemed to be coming together, uh, particularly with the trade union leaders who were favouring rearmament against Nazi Germany. And in 1936, uh, Churchill said to uh, his son, that all left-wing intelligentsia are coming to look to me for protection and I will give it wholeheartedly in return for their aid in the rearmament of Britain. Now, the, um, if you look at the uh, leaders of the Conservative Party after the war, the first one was Churchill, then Anthony Eden, Harold Macmillan, all opponents of appeasement. Had Neville Chamberlain's policy succeeded, none of them would have got anywhere near power. Churchill, uh, the outbreak of war, was 64 years old. He was thought to be a figure of the past, brilliant failure, great qualities, but no judgment, no sense. And um, no one at that time would have said, if there hadn't been a war, that he would be prime minister. Uh, Anthony Eden had resigned from Chamberlain's government against the appeasement of Italy in February 1938. 
and had Chamberlain and his colleagues continued in power, um, Eden would not, I think, have, have made a rapid comeback, certainly not to a very prominent position. Uh, Harold Macmillan had been given no office at all uh, when uh, war broke out. He was 45 years old. He was a, seen as an eccentric and insignificant backbencher, and he too would not have been, um, would have become prime minister uh, had it not been for the um, uh, opposition to appeasement. And conversely, on the other side, it's very possible that R.A. Butler would have been prime minister if appeasement had been successful. He was very much identified with that, but that proved obviously um, uh, very damaging to him after the war. The, um, uh, what happened in the war, Norway, Dunkirk, the process of the war, and so on, whether justifiable or not, it's for you to judge, but the, the pre war conservatives were utterly discredited. Munich, whether rightly or wrongly, became a dirty word. Mass unemployment, people said, was avoidable. It was unnecessary because the Conservatives were cruel and heartless and, and insensitive and so on. And um, uh, the so Labour legitimised by the war, but the Conservatives delegitimised by the war in a way. They'd been wrong on foreign policy, wrong on domestic policy. We had to have a better world afterwards of full employment and social security and so on. And um, in 1945, Harold Macmillan said the British people were voting not against Winston Churchill, but against the ghost of Neville Chamberlain, and, which I, I think is correct. And already during the war, uh, the welfare state in its modern form began to take shape. In 1940, free milk was introduced for mothers and children under five, free school meals extended. In 1942, the Beveridge Report came out and had a mass sale saying conditions should be better after the war, there must be a welfare state, a health service to be put together free at the uh, source, uh, social security uh, and so on. And so a new consensus, if you like, a social democratic consensus, a more left-wing consensus than the one of the 30s, which lasted until the mid-1970s, till Margaret Thatcher perhaps she was a consequence, perhaps a cause, uh, until she began to undermine it. But it lasted well and legitimised a much greater role for the state, which, of course, had, used a, had been of importance uh, during the war. And uh, an interesting comment made by an opponent of all these developments, uh, uh, a free market economist, Friedrich von Hayek, who wrote a book in 1944 called The Road to Serfdom. It was quoted by Churchill in his election broadcast, uh, in 1945, uh, and then mocked by Attlee, who uh, emphasised Hayek's foreign origins in his speech. He said Churchill's trying to frighten us with a book by an unknown Austrian called von Hayek. Uh, but Hayek said, uh, if we take the people whose views influence developments, they are now in the democracies all socialists. Scarcely anyone doubts that we must move towards socialism and I think that is uh, a key feature. In a sense, what happens in 1940 and, and the developments there prefigure the post-war settlement, uh, which ruled Britain really till the late 1970s. So from the international point of view, 1940 is a momentous time in world history where Britain, perhaps for the last time by independent initiative, um, uh, really arguably saved, saved Europe, saved the world. Uh, but also, uh, I think a key moment shouldn't be overlooked in domestic politics in bringing a new and different type of conservative into power, bringing the Labour Party into power, creating, if you like, a social democratic consensus, the post-war settlement, and that, I think, is a good point at which to stop. And to hear the rest of the story, you have to come back in September. Thank you. <laughs>
For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.